message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love uh, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Our Savior, Jesus, um, you are both the model to us of what love is and your great um, uh, humiliation as you came and were uh, you born in a manger, became poor and dwelt among us and bore our sins on the cross. Um, you are a model to us of love, but more than that, uh, you have loved us with such supreme love. And we ask uh, that you would um, uh, pour that love into our hearts as we study your word now. And that by your spirit, this community, this church, we would become um, a, a church that glorifies you, honors you, shows the world who you are through our love for one another. So I pray that you would take these words, these perfect words, um, of the scriptures and by your spirit apply them into each of the lives um, each of our lives each of our hearts and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight O Lord our rock and our redeemer we ask this in, in the name of Jesus amen so um, as I mentioned we're returning uh, to our study of first John that we started last summer and uh, just kind of a, a, a brief recap uh, of, of last summer. First John is, uh, is a letter written to a group of churches in, uh, in Ephesus. John, the Apostle John, was uh, a pastor of a number of churches in Ephesus, and there's uh, kind of been problems happening in these churches where, uh, you know, they're little churches like ours, and there are these uh, false teachers, they're, they're called Antichrists in, in First John, are taking um, uh, people away from the church and they're starting new churches. And this isn't like, you know, someone they're starting a new denomination or something like that. It's something more severe than that. They have um, misunderstood the basic principles of the gospel. First of all, that Jesus is God become a man and dwelt among us and bore our sins on the cross. And that because Jesus has done that for us, we should love one another. And what we see, one of the things that I love about the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, and as we're returning to it, is the simplicity of this letter. Um, because uh, what he is constantly reminding them of is, this, is because there's these false teachers who are taking these, starting these new churches, taking people away, uh, splintering off, he says, let me just bring you back to the basics of what the gospel is and what your faith is all about. And over and over again, he says, this is basically what it means to be a Christian is you've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's loved you by dying on the cross for you, and that has profoundly changed you so that you can't help but love other people and especially love other Christians, that you form a community where um, the very mark of that community is that you love one another. 
He's like, that's, that's the simplicity of what it is to be a Christian. And he's consistently coming back to that. And you can see that here in this, uh, this verse that I just read there in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the basic mark of the Christian life, the mark that someone's come to believe in Jesus, to love him, that they're full of the Spirit, is that they love people. And, um, you know, one of the things I love about that little verse, on the one hand, you know, he says that you've heard that message, that message you heard from me from the beginning. And, what, you know, on the one hand, what is he saying? He's kind of bringing them back to when they first became Christians and they first found out that they were sinners and that God loved them and, uh, and embraced them, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ had done for them. And, they, and, and that caused them to love people. The simplicity is remembering what it was like when you first became a Christian. Go back to that. But also, anyone who's read the Bible or familiar with the Bible would also hear that little phrase, from the beginning. And it would stir up uh, another thought, not just the beginning of when they became a Christian, but what other thought would that bring up? The beginning of the Bible, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And very subtly, he's bringing them back, and as he's speaking about love, he's bringing them back into that primordial age uh, when the universe was being formed and the, and the earth was void and dark and the, um, there was just a vast ocean and nothing had been formed and there was God um, uh, creating the universe and speaking through uh, his word uh, the world into existence and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep and it's bringing us back into the very ancient beginnings of the universe. And what he's saying is love is so important because love is the deepest reality of the universe. And that's actually one of, that's a distinctive of what Christians believe because Christians don't believe that God is there's just one God. We believe there's one God, but that one God is is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that before the world was, before the universe existed, what was there? There was community. There was love. There was relationship. And so more foundational than anything in the world is love. And he's bringing us back to it and he says that what's happened in the gospel is that that primordial love that, that's more ancient than the mountains has become a man, dwelt among us, has acted in history among us. And that should profoundly shape how we interact with one another and how we treat one another in this community. And so uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to meditate on love in the Christian community. And I want to explore it really under these three headings. The first thing first thing that John says is that, that love has obstacles to it, okay? We first, you know, and that's an important thing, that love has obstacles, because everyone, you know, who doesn't say that we should be loving, right? Everyone, be loving. Let's, let's all get along, right? Let, all you need is love. We've heard that over and over again, but uh, J- uh, John wants to insist that it's not that simple. There's something in us that's an obstacle to love. What is that? So first, love has obstacles. Second, love is hospitality. Love is the way that he describes, and the way we see it in the Bible is, can be marked by that. what does love look like? What is the nature of love? It is hospitality. We'll explore that. And third, that ultimately love flows from the gospel. Love, when we believe the gospel, when we've come to believe it, the most natural response to it is that we can't help but love people. We can't help but be generous and kind and overlooking other people's offenses and forgiving. We can't help but do that when that's really hit our hearts. Okay, so these three things, love has obstacles, love is hospitality, and third, love flows from the gospel. Okay, so the first of these is love has obstacles. Um, Hold on one second. Um, Now, if you were to imagine, okay, God has this vision where he's creating a people, 
He's doing that around the world. In every nation, he's doing, making little families like this, of people that he's drawing to himself through Christ that they would love one another. What would be the biggest obstacles to a community like this loving each other? Now, you might think, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, we have different backgrounds. Maybe we're, you know, we have a lot of different ages in our church. Maybe different, you know, people have different interests. Maybe people have different personality types. Um, what, what are the things that are going to create the obstacles to us loving each other? Well, um, what we see in, in verse 12 is that John says this, We should not be like Cain, who was, the evil one, uh, who was, was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you don't know the, the story of Cain and Abel, it's, it comes from Genesis chapter 4. These are Adam and Eve's. Right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into humanity. Humanity is in rebellion against God. And so the first, the, our first parents have uh, these two sons. And the very first thing that basically happens is these two sons, they come to bring an offering to God. They know God, and they're bringing these offerings. And Abel, the younger son, um, uh, brings his offering in faith and love to God. And he offers it to God, and, and God receives it. But Cain kind of brings it just out of duty. It's kind of this external um, obligation that he brings to God, and God does not receive it. And so God receives Abel's offering and doesn't receive Cain's. And then it says this in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain was angry, and his face fell. And actually, immediately after, God warns him, hey, there's something growing in your heart. I see your anger. I see that your, your face is falling. Something's growing in your heart. You better watch. Sin is crouching at the door. And Cain goes out into the field and murders his brother. And it's a fascinating passage because it shows us fundamentally why we hurt other people and, and instead of giving thanks for them. And uh, what we see in the story of Cain and Abel is that the two greatest obstacles to love are envy and self-pity. Envy and self-pity are the obstacles uh, to love. Look, at, The first is this. The first obstacle to love is envy. And uh, you, know, you can see that in Genesis it says that Cain was very angry. And uh, you know, most of us, when we think of what envy is, we think in terms of, you know, one of our friends is, you know, going to Mexico or something, and we're like, oh, I'm so envious you're going to Mexico. I want to go to Mexico. But actually, that's not what envy is. Envy, that's, that's covetousness, right? I wish I had what was yours. Envy is something far darker and far more troubling because envy doesn't say, you have something and I want it. Envy says, you have something and I hate you for it. I resent you for it, and I wish you didn't have it. I just want it to be removed from you. And, uh, and so I want, I want to, you know, God has blessed you, and I wish there were curses on you instead. This is what envy is. It's, it's going another step from covetousness. And, um, and uh, one of the things that happens in a church is that um, God brings a group of people together who come from all different backgrounds. We have all different things. We have all different ways that God's dealed with, uh, dealt with us, all kinds of um, stories that we have brought to this church. Um, we have different jobs. We have uh, diff different socioeconomic status, different gifts, uh, different spouses, different kids. We have all kinds of different things, and all of these things are a potential for envy. Why has God dealt with them that way and not dealt with me that way? Why hasn't God been kind to me? And it's not only that we want it, but we resent other people for it. But actually, what you see in this passage, passage though, is that one of the biggest things that we bring 
to this church that is a potential obstacle for us is that we come with different levels of spiritual maturity. We're at different places with God. We, some people you know, know a lot about the Bible or have grown in wisdom or uh, joy or love. And, um, and um, instead of, when we see people who are further along in the faith than us, instead of thanking God for them or instead of looking at them and saying, uh, how can I learn from them? Look at, they, they're so much, you know, they've, they've figured this out in ways that I haven't. Hey, tell me about how to do that. I want to learn from you. Um, we, uh, we begin to look at them and we, and we begin to s- say things like, you know, uh, they're really just self-righteous. They think they're so much better than everyone. They think they're so good at that. I know, I know that this is just a show. They're just putting on a show, but they really have problems uh, going on. And we want, what we want is instead of celebrating that God has blessed them, we want to believe that they're really cursed or to believe that it's really a lie, we want to bring them down. And that's what, uh, that's what envy is. And you see that this is exactly what happened with Cain. Verse 12. And why did Cain murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His brother had, was further along in the faith, you know, loved God more, or, you know, was more mature in his spirituality. And um, one of the things I want to point out about that, if you wrestle with that, and you say, gosh, I see that happening in my heart, I see that happening at church, you know, what do I do about that? Well, one, of the, uh, you know, one way that we should deal with other people's godliness, that other people are wise or further along than us, is because what the gospel says is that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. My standing before God is based on what Jesus has done, not what I've done. And so when I see someone else who's, you know, you know, they have a good marriage or they're very wise, they know a lot about the Bible or they're doing a lot of ministry or they're you're doing evangelism, sharing people, and I say, I know I should be like that, but I never feel like I could be like that. What you should realize is what you're seeing, that godliness you're seeing, is just a, a sand, a little, um, little piece, a smidge of the great righteousness of Jesus. That's just a, a little taste of the huge righteousness of Jesus that's far more beautiful than that person's righteousness. And the far bigger righteousness than that, that you thought you could never have, God has clothed you with that. I have what that person has plus a million times over, and that's my standing before God. I wear that. And so whenever I see someone's godliness, instead of it leading me to envy, it should lead me to Christ and say, Christ is even more beautiful. And I have him. I don't have that person, but I have Jesus. And I have that standing before God, and God loves me, and he embraces me, and he declares me righteous because of what Christ has done for me. Okay? Cannot exist. Let me read that again. Self-pity is a vacuum into which gratitude cannot exist. In fact, self-pity and thanksgiving cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. Although thanksgiving is the antidote to this poison, few bound by self-pity will take the foray into expressing thanks for all the blessings they do have. Self-pity is, uh, comes from a sense of entitlement, that I deserve more than what God's given me. I deserve what God's given to other people. And so I'm ungrateful. And... Um, and the sad thing about that, when we're ungrateful for what we, we have in our life and we feel, I deserve more, I deserve more, is it robs us of joy. And you will not have the joy that is necessary to love people. And so um, self-pity is a tremendous obstacle to 
to loving other people and giving thanks for them and rejoicing over them and serving them. You don't have the space. You don't have the, the you, you know, when you feel like, gosh, I have so much more than I deserve. I, I'm, I'm overflowing with, with blessings. Of course I can give them away. Of course I can share with others because I have so much more than I deserve. But if I think I've been robbed, I haven't gotten what I've deserved, I need to hold on to what's mine. I'm not going to be sharing. I'm not going to be open-handed. And so, you know, again, what's the, what's the remedy for self-pity? I think at least one is that uh, we deal with self-pity by having a robust vision of the sovereignty of God in our life. When we believe that whatever has come into my life, whatever trial, whatever status, whatever family, um, whatever situation I'm in, this was the appointment of a good king, a good king who's my father. And even the bitter things that have been brought into my life have been appointed by him, and because I trust him and I know that he's good, I embrace him and I rest in him. And that my life is not wildly out of control. My life is not wildly unjust. Uh, my life is the story that my Father in Heaven is writing, and I receive it with thanksgiving. I think a robust vision that God is sovereign over everything that happens in our life is the key to self-pity. Okay? So... Um, these are the two obstacles to love that we should be aware of. And let me just say one other thing. Um, you know, what do you do? Okay, envy and self-pity. What if, what if the, I see those things in my life? What do, I, what do you do? I, just not be them? Should I just not be envy? It's just, I can't do that. I wasn't telling myself to be envious. It was just coming out of my heart or self-pity. I just feel that way. What do I do? And I'll tell you what the Bible says. It's very simple. Don't, and don't hear this as a burden or as like a heavy thing. It's actually, it's, it's freeing. Is You repent. You just tell God, I see in my heart that I'm full of envy, and I envy this person. And I see that I'm struggling with self-pity, and I don't want to be like that, and forgive me. And would you give me your spirit that I could not be like that anymore? That's what you do. And God, God loves to hear a prayer like that. He loves that. So it's not like, wow, i got to radically transform my life. I just repent and I believe. That's, that's the gospel, okay? So, when I do that, and when you've encountered God and you find out he's that good and he's a father who cares for you, then you want to love because he's loved you. So what is the nature of love? What, is it, what does it look like? What does God expect, you know, intend that love's going to look like in our church? And this is the second thing we're looking at, is that love is Hospitality. Love is hospitality. Because, you know, that's an important question, right? What is love? Love is something we talk about all the time. I mean, someone could, uh, you know, abandon their family. You know, so, you know, if someone falls in love with someone else and say, well, I have to obey love. It, it, you know, and my heart's somewhere else. So I'm going to leave my family because I have to obey love. So you say, well, I don't think that's quite love that you're talking about. So when the Bible talks about love, what is love? And I think in this passage we see that love is hospitality. And um, in, the, in the Bible, uh, the, the Greek word for hospitality is uh, philoxenos. And philoxenos is, is a, two words put to get, together, phileo, which is the word for brotherly love, love, uh, friendly love, and, uh, and the word xenos, which is the word for stranger. It's family love for strangers. That's what hospitality is. It's taking the benefits of being in a family and giving those to people who are not a part of the family. Because in the ancient world, your kind of safety, your, your wholeness as a, as a person, your sense of, of security and protection and warmth was all connected to your extended family. 
And so if you are like a sojourner, you're someone who's traveling, and you don't have an extended family, you're a very vulnerable person. And so, um, so you, you need a family. And what hospitality is, is giving the benefits of being part of my family and extending it to other people. And, um, and this is exactly what John says in these verses. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, that was, that was very, this was a radical uh, countercultural practice in the early church that they took family names and they applied it to the people in their church. So when we came together and they said, and the people that they're loving, they say, that's just not another Christian, that's my brother. That's my extended family. And so just like the extended family has rights to my goods and my possessions, you know, I, you know if you've got a brother who's living in another state and they go, they're out of a job and they can't pay their rent, you just say, boom, I'm all over it. Here's the check. Get it paid, right? Is that's what families do. That's what brothers do. We look out for one another. And they're taking those rights of a family and applying it to the Christian community and saying, we have those rights with each other. That's, what the, that's the nature of love among us. And then he goes on and he says this, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need. See, the world's goods. What do you do? And, and that word goods, it's the word bios. And uh, it, the word for life. You know where we get biology, right? The study of life. And so what he's saying is what, the world's goods are anything that kind of cares for your biological life, right? They clothes, shelter, food, um, uh, warmth, um, you know, someone to talk to, hugs, <laughs> Love, affection, whatever it is, the thing that cares for my... Um, so if you have those things, these are all the things that are um, benefits you get from being in a family. Because right? you think, of what do my kids get from being in my household? They get to eat. They don't have to earn that food. You know, It's, it's their gift. It's their right. They get shelter. They get someone to talk to them about their day, process the decisions that they're making in their life. They get to learn about God and learn about the scriptures. They get, um, they get to play together. There's, I, I have people to play with and to laugh with and to uh, you know, read stories with, to do life together in, in the context of a home. And what uh, the picture of love in the Bible is, is all those rights of being a part of a family, we welcome strangers in to share in with us. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, Shannon and I experienced this really powerfully. We were, right when we got married, um, we were... We'd been in college. We didn't really have a church. We bounced around for churches. We, so we were married. We were like, we got to get, we need to be a part of a church. So uh, we went out. We were driving out on the guide past Wiser Lake Chapel. I don't know if, how many of you have been out there. It's a little chapel that you'd drive by and be like, who goes to that church? I mean, does anyone really go there? But they had this nice little flower pot out, which was enough to say to my wife, wouldn't it be precious if we actually went to that church with the flower pots? And I was like, yeah. I don't really care how precious it would be, but okay, <laughs> we'll try it out. And so I said, we'll go one week, and we go, and uh, you know, it's all you know. We're college students at Western, and uh, it's all these dairy farmers, and and we go in, but the sermon, you know, was this great exposition of Genesis 15. I remember it. There was, and uh, and we were just so excited to be there. Um, but then at the end of the service, there was uh, this this guy comes up and he says, Hey, you guys are new here. Why don't you come have dinner with us? Uh, and I was like, oh, dinner? You know, so like at five or something, they had dinner at one. So I was, we had to learn the language, okay? They had dinner at one, or supper maybe it was. Uh, and so, but it was like, sure, you, want, you don't even know us. You're just going to have us over your house for dinner? And we go over to their house, and, uh, you know, it's out in the county in this log cabin the guy had built himself. And, you know, they're serving up some 
sheep that had got caught in a barbed wire fence and they had to kill or something. And we're like, well, great. We're college students. We'll eat it. And we sat around and, we're, and we were singing hymns out of hymnals. And this was just a complete odd cultural world for us. And yet we, were, we left there and we're like, we are not going to any other church. We have found our home. They just, we didn't even know them. And in the next three weeks, we had been in multiple other people's homes. And they welcomed and they fed us. And we said, what is this place? What are they doing? They don't even know us. It was this power. They were extending the benefits of their family to complete strangers. And it, it radically had a, an impact on our lives. And that's what John is calling us to as the community of a church, is that love is hospitality. It's an essential part of our mission. And let me just say, that's true, you know, for us as a church to have a culture of, of opening our homes, extending family love to people in this church. But that's also true, you know, to your neighbors, people you're working with. For them to come into your home, you know, people who've maybe moved here, they don't have a uh, uh, they don't have a family nearby to come and, and be a part of your home, to eat at your table, is very powerful. It's, it, it's a simple way that we do our mission. And uh, let me just share with you one story. I, I read recently um, a, a memoir of a, a gal named Rosaria Butterfield. Um, it's called The Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. If you haven't read this book, it's, very, it's a wonderful read. Um, she was a, uh, a professor at the University of Syracuse um, in the women's studies department. She was a, a lesbian activist, um, very uh, well known in her community. And um, the story talks about, she tells about how uh, she had written a, uh, a article in their local newspaper about promise keepers. I don't know if you know promise keepers is this big ministry in the 90s for men, it's Christian men, and she's, you know, she's this feminist gal, she just tears into Promise Keepers, and, and she would get all this um, mail about her article, and, um, and she would get the mail, and she had two piles, uh, fan mail and hate mail, and she'd be like, oh, thank you, fan mail, hate mail, fan mail, and she had this very easy way to handle all the mail, some fan mail, and that's fully what you expect, and then she gave this letter from this pastor, this little Reformed Presbyterian church. And it was very, she said it was very kind, and he was just asking her questions about her beliefs about the world. And he was like, now, I, she, I can't figure out which pile to put this in. Is this fan mail or hate mail? <laughs> and she couldn't, and then and it stayed on her desk for a week while she was trying to figure out what pile to put it in. And so finally she just called him up and said, I need, I need to talk to you. <laughs> Let's talk about, I want to talk about your letter. And so this pastor and his wife, he's like a 70-year-old pastor, he has no cultural connection to this woman whatsoever. He says, well, why don't you just come over for a meal, and we'll talk about it. And it was this transformative meal where she comes into, in, into, uh, into his house. I'm going to read to you just two paragraphs. I know this is a little longer quote than usual, but uh, I, I want to read to you as she describes the impact of this meal on her life. She says this, this meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of my journey. I left their table needing to know a number of things. Does God exist? If God does exist, what does he expect from me? How do I communicate with him? How do I know, he, uh, how do I know who he is and what he wants? What if God is dead? How do I have the courage to face the truth either way? Before I ever set foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying strip, uh, scripture in my heart. If Ken and Floyd had invited me to church at the first meal, I would have careened like a skateboarder on a cliff and would have never come back. Ken, of course, knows the power of uh, the word preached, but it seemed to me he also knew at that time that I couldn't come to church. 
It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. This gave me the room and the safety that I needed to match Ken and Floyd's vulnerability and transparency. And so I opened up to them. I let them know who I was and what I valued. I invited them into my home and into my world. They met my friends, came to my dinner parties, saw me function in my real life. They made themselves safe enough for me to do this. And it was because they opened their family and let her be a part of their family. That's what love is, is hospitality. So, of course, that's a question for us of, uh, is that our church? Um, would someone experience that through us? Do we want them to experience that through us? But also, how do we become a church that people experience that through us? What makes us like that? So this is the last third thing we're going to look at uh, this morning, is that um, not just that love has obstacles that we need to be serious about, envy and self-pity, that we need to bring to the Lord, um, and, uh, and not just that love is hospitality, but last, love flows from the gospel. Love flows from the gospel. And we see that love flows, flows from the gospel in two ways. First of all, um, because of the wonder of the resurrection. Love comes from the gospel because the resurrection fills us with a sense of wonder. Now, let me just say this. You know, I mentioned a little bit about self-pity. It's a, you know, a problem uh, that keeps us from loving people. The, the issue with self-pity is it turns us in on, our, on ourselves. We're thinking inwardly, and you almost become blind to the world and to the wonders of the world that you're living in, that you're even alive and that you're a part of the world, and that God's breathed life into you and he's pumping your heart and there's trees and there's all these things. And uh, the opposite of self-pity is to be filled with wonder again. And um, what the gospel tells us is that a new world has started in the resurrection of Jesus, a new world. So that um, in a real time, in a real place, we know when, uh, in, in, you know, in a in, in, uh, little place outside of Jerusalem, in the year we know when, AD 30, uh, Jesus Christ was crucified by we know who, Pontius Pilate, in real history. And on the third day, his body was raised from the dead, indestructible. Indestructible. And the Bible says that what he is, is he's this first fruit. He's the beginning of what God, what God did for him when he raised his body to an indestructible life is what he's going to do for us. And not just what he's going to do for us. In some way, that's what he's going to do for the whole universe. The whole universe is going to um, come into this resurrection life in Jesus. And that when we believe in him, we have a share in this age to come where all things will be made right. Every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. And I have a share in that. And it's begun how do I know it's going to happen? It's because it's already begun with one guy. One guy's already entered into the resurrection life. That's, Je that's Jesus. And, um, and what John says here, look at verse 14. For we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. What he's saying, he's not saying if you're a loving person, then you get to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the mark of that resurrection life is love. And that same power, that same spirit that animated Jesus, that's going to animate the whole uh, age to come, has begun to live in us. The spirit of God has come to live inside of us. And so that, that, little, that little meal where the 70-year-old pastor and his wife had the lesbian professor over and they just talked about life, what that means, that love, that hospitality there is a token, is a picture of that world to come. 
brought into this world of the resurrection life. It, it, they're tasting it right there. And it's when we begin to have a wonder that I have a share in an age to come where everything will be made right. This life is, is but a dream compared to the life that's going to come where every, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, every new chapter will be better than the last. That's what I'm entering into. When that wonder fills me, I have this overflow. I have this excess in order to love other people. And so the first thing, love flows out of the gospel because of the wonder of the resurrection, the promise that we have in the resurrection. But also, second, love flows out of the gospel because of the grace of the cross. It is the grace of the cross. Look at verse 16 again, the most important verse in this passage. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John says the way you becoming a lo- become a loving person is when you realize Jesus has laid down his life for you. Then you will lay down your life. You will give your life sacrificially for other people. And you know what? You go back and you see when Jesus died and he laid down his life, what killed him? What killed Jesus? Mark 15:10. This is Pilate. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. When God came to visit us in Jesus Christ, our envy murdered him. Our envy, the envy that's the obstacle of love, murdered him. But you know what happened? You know when Cain murdered his brother out of envy? You know what happened? God said that the blood was crying out to him, justice, get justice, punish him because he's a murderer. But when our envy murdered Jesus, do you know what his blood cries out to us? Forgive him. Embrace them, love them, cover them. They're mine. I bought them. As Hebrew says, it, it, it calls out a better word, a better word than the blood of Abel. And so the blood of the cross, it, it covers the obstacles that we have to love. Our envy and our self-pity are covered by the blood of Jesus. But even more than that, what did Jesus do on the cross? He took enemies, uh, the enemies of God, not just strangers, not just people who are outside of God's family, people who are hostile to God, who ignored God their whole life, and he says, come, be my brothers, be sons of the living God, come into my family. The cross is the supreme act of hospitality where God takes those who are outside and he says, come and enjoy all the benefits of being in my family. So the reason we love is because we have been loved profoundly by God. He's dealt with our envy and self-pity. And he's shown us hospitality. And so we can't help but love each other and love our neighbors. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. The acts that you have done give us faith uh, to believe in the great love of Christ who laid down his life for us, that we would lay down our lives for one another. We pray that the resurrection life of Jesus, the Spirit, would live in us and enable us to first repent of our envy and our self-pity, but also to show hospitality, to take the risk of opening our home. Give us abundance that we might love others. And would you be glorified through this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.